Welcome to Nature-backed podcast of Single Earth. In this series, we are talking with investors about their vision of the new green world. My name is Tarmo Virki, and in this episode three, I sat down with Natasha Jones from Octopus Ventures to discuss about how her company is seeing the climate tech investment scene developing. Enjoy the show. Natasha, say a few words about you know what is Octopus doing. Yeah, happy to, and thanks so much for having me, Tom, on on the show. Um, so, Octopus Ventures is a venture capital fund headquartered in London. We specialize in early stage investments and back companies and founders who are really pioneering new and category defining businesses. Um, in terms of where we invest, so it's really sector agnostic, but we've decided to split ourselves into these sector focused teams. So we have a healthcare team that do everything from digital health all the way to biotech. We have a consumer team that will do consumer products all the way to future of work software. We have deep tech and they do all the kind of cool stuff, I think, like drones and quantum computing. We have a B2B enterprise software team and I sit in the fintech team. So we really do quite the spectrum of um, early stage investments. Mm -hmm. And early stage for you guys means what exactly? That's also a good question because it's a bit of a slippery term nowadays. Um, So really, we'll seek to invest when a kind of MVP product is on the market and the company or the founders are really looking to expand their team and their commercial presence. And that's when we'll come in and really throw fuel onto the fire, um, help with kind of those fast key hires and professionalizing the senior management team, um, as well as, you know, we've got a really great talent team here at Octopus as well that are really hands-on. Um, and then obviously everything to do with sales as well. So, yeah, really when it's like fast green shoots of a, of a great product, um, that's when we tend to get really excited. Mm. When uh, this show is called Nature-Backed uh, Podcast, uh, when Nature-Backed Investing or Nature-Backed Finance is mentioned, what comes to your mind? It's really interesting because I think a lot of this discussion will be about climate topics. But actually, for me, nature-backed isn't necessarily in the umbrella of climate tech. It's quite specific, actually. And I'm seeing more and more technology catered specifically to things like nature regeneration, reforestation, adaptation of natural climates, um, and the whole spectrum of technologies that can help enable that from drones you know, automating, replanting trees, which I've seen, which is absolutely incredible, um, all the way to um, satellite imagery, data processing, um, in order to assess where you know, the best reforestation projects should go. So for me, like nature-backed investing is actually very similar to nature-based investing, mm-hmm. um, but caters more to the various tools um, and data providers and services that are required to to make that more efficient mm. uh, in the fin- you said you're sitting in a fintech team uh, but uh, you know what kind of green investments have you have you guys made or have you personally been involved in yeah so i think i sit in the fintech team and for me climate fintech is really important now what do i mean by climate fintech it's really how can we use data and transactions and use that as a nexus of essentially human activity to bring us to a low carbon world? So thinking about 
how uh, you know if we can footprint people's activities and businesses' activities as precisely as possible, that becomes a really valuable data source um, to nudge behaviors in the right ways and align incentives, financial incentives with environmental um, environmental advantages. And that first that kind of uh, first investment into that space that we made was called Minimum. And they do carbon accounting. So they trained their uh, carbon accounting models on consumer data. And that's enabled them to build a really powerful um, powerful algorithm to measure business emissions, actually. And so that's what they're doing. And they're helping businesses go carbon neutral. So not only, um, and for me, this is really key, not only assessing your carbon footprint and, and providing a, a number on that, but telling you where the biggest areas are for improvement, because I think decarbonizing is key. You, you don't need to just, it's, it's great to know, but it's also better to know how to um, mm. kind of move the needle on your emissions. And then finally, the final uh, you know, step, decarbonizing and offsetting, of course. So offsetting what you can't uh, decarbonize at this stage. Um, so that was our first investment in climate fintech. And we're looking pretty closely at the kind of whole suite where there's one which we can't quite um, announce just yet, but thinking about where those data providers can come, for example, so specialist data providers, I think will become really important in future. I'm also looking very closely at um, green financial products. So again, um, how to use different data sources and bake those in to new financial products, thinking about green mortgages, for example, um, or green uh, investment Mm -hmm. products. And then uh, I think it's also important to note that Octopus invests also across all of its um, teams will have climate investments. So the consumer team do a lot in the circular economy, such as Depop, um, which is one of our uh, unicorn exits, um, as well as Wally, which is helping uh, kids become more environmental by um, having this kind of circular toy subscription model. So lots and lots to, to be getting on with. Mm. I think the links to the startups will add to the show notes, but uh, the uh, the green uh, f- green uh, financial products was the thing which really kind of tickled my mind. Uh, I mean, do we see some? Do you see some kind of a wave of green financial products? And and you know, if the big banks uh, come out with a green financial products, my suspicious mind always says that this, this must be greenwashing. I mean, what on earth are they doing? Yeah, there's such a distrust of big banks providing green financial products. Obviously, the, obviously, <laughs> the data is really clear, though. So if you can move your pension to a green and sustainable pension. It's 27 times more effective than going vegan, which as someone who tried to go vegan and failed, (laughs) I can tell you it seems a lot easier uh, to just select a green uh, pension provider. In terms of, you know, I I think what's super interesting is, is now the regulatory push to clamp down on greenwashing. And that's tied to consumer distrust as well. So I think in in France, there was a survey, 60% of consumers distrust green labeling from banks. I think from for our space, that's created kind of an opportunity. So you're seeing a lot of green fintech saying, well, we know that the big banks, um, no one trusts them. Mm. So that's we're kind of building a brand from scratch that 
consumers could trust. And baked into that is a huge amount of transparency. So being very open about what you're investing in and what's how you're assessing whether something is green or not. Because so I did a lot of ESG work in my um, old job. I used to work at a bank and there's so many different investment strategies for ESG that, of course, the term is very, very slippery. It's everything from we're excluding weapons and tobacco to we're only investing in a new energy company. And within that, there's a whole swathe of different ways you can slice the baby, essentially. So I think consumers are right to distrust banks, but perhaps within that, there's there needs to be great clarity around ESG. And I think that's what the taxonomy, for example, was really striving to do. And uh, for the listeners who are not very familiar with the vocabulary, ESG stands for environment? Uh, Social governance. Governance, exactly. Yeah. So it's a way of assessing. So I think when people talk about ESG, they often think it's associated to environment because that's the way that banks present it. They say, oh, well, try this new ESG green portfolio. When in fact, ESG doesn't necessarily mean green. There are environmental considerations, but there are also social considerations such as whether you're paying workers a fair wage will be baked into those calculations and G governance will take into account accounting transparency, for example. So it's a very, I think there's over 50 metrics that it could incorporate if not. And within that, there'll be different data sets as well that can be used. So it's, yeah, it's very much a, a, a slippery world. Life is hard, but finding a really great podcast makes the days go by so much easier. Hi, my name is Blue Toulousma. I'm a writer, an emotional intelligence coach, and the host of Humanize with Blue Toulousma, a podcast where we believe that when you humanize everyone in the room, a great conversation is almost guaranteed. Join us every week here on Electricast as me and my guest co-hosts unpack big topics and interview even bigger personalities with a sense of humor and a dash of mischief. If you're looking for a new best friend in your head, we've got you covered. I read one of your blog posts about this and uh, remember, you know, probably we'll always remember that the amount of ESG investing has grown massively, but the challenge is that uh, who defines ESG exactly how and uh, what's included and what's not included. And probably from the big bank's view, it's always better to include as much as possible because then their portfolio looks much more, you know, kind of new generation friendly. Yeah, I think if I'm honest, like I think as much as a lot of it's driven by consumer demand for new uh, sustainable, both people and planet, sustainable investing products. I've got to say that I think there is a lot of will within banks to change and to provide these new portfolios, green portfolios. I think the tooling isn't quite there for, for example, the data is not there. Lots of companies still don't report on many of the factors that are really important for these calculations. And that provides difficulty. There's also a difficulty around exclusion. That's really getting into the weeds, but thinking, okay, well, do we exclude, uh, you know, all oil, you know, fossil fuel um, producers when that includes that, when that excludes actually from the S&P 500, that would exclude most energy companies. So there's there's a bit of a um, 
a, a challenge around exclusion of whole sectors because that leaves you really exposed. Um, but I think generally, as, as I said, I think this is really where green fintech becomes super exciting because consumers can see that this digital platform provides transparency, it provides real-time performance data on your assets, real-time performance data on the environmental metrics going into it. And so I think I'm seeing some really exciting things happening in that space. And I think consumers are actually um, really snatching these products out of the hands of these green fintechs because, yeah, I know everyone wants to do better. They're not really sure how. And these provide quite an easy, low-hanging fruit way of doing it. Mm. And the the kind of the data collection uh, opportunity, of course, is something which is very, very natural for probably many startup founders and many startups because, you know, they've been doing this or something like this across the sectors. It's just, you know, about the time this was coming to the financial industry. Yeah, I think the data collection piece, correct me if I'm wrong, but the data collection piece still feels like the hardest piece actually in this to solve. As I said, a lot of companies don't report or report with unclear methodology, and that makes it hard to calculate uh, to create green financial products. I think even in just in terms of carbon accounting, you know, a can of chickpeas from the UK for a particular farm will have a very different carbon footprint from a can of chickpeas in France, for example, for so many different reasons. I mean, just the complexities involved in the creation of one clean, understandable number is very, very difficult. And there's two separate ways of doing this data gathering piece. There's estimation-based data collection, so saying you know, people taking a top-down approach, this sector tends to produce X amount. You know, it's all about um, plugging in the gaps using existing data sets. And then there's another approach of getting incredibly granular and tracing step-by-step a carbon emission supply chain as such. And that creates a huge amount of manual work usually, and that's where consultancies have tended to lie. And so I think, again, where tech can play a really essential role is automating a lot of these processes to try and get closer and closer to accuracy, because without accuracy, you can't create objective and reliable even decarbonisation targets, because if, yeah, you actually perhaps might be doing more harm than good in some ways. So I think it's, um, yeah, it's just really complicated. But I think the accuracy piece, um, I've seen some really great stuff in things, in obviously with machine learning, but with satellites. Um, and also just fundamentally just engaging with stakeholders. And I think that's what environmental um kind of fintechs or environmental data startups have really tried to crack is trying to actually get all these different nodes in a supply chain to talk to each other through automation, but also through intelligent UI design. So that's also quite interesting. How much do you see there as a challenge of, um, how would I say, a timeline challenge? I mean, I can see that there is importance of getting these details uh, of the CO2 emission calculations uh, right, but it could probably take decades before all this information is together. At the same time, we are seeing, you know, looking out of the window, the 
you know, in the middle of winter, it's plus five in Estonia. It used to be minus 20 week ago. You know, the climate is changing around us and it feels often that we're kind of late doing the, doing the math or the working on Excel. Yeah, the timing point is really interesting. I think a few thoughts on that. When I first started in finance, people weren't taking ESG seriously. The There was demand from certain quite avant-garde clients, but nowhere near the level of demand we're seeing now. And I think there's been a noticeable shift in interest for ESG, but also for climate tech more generally. And actually, for a huge amount of interest, huge huge amount more interest is going into things that previously were seen as quite uninvestable, such as hardware. Um, and I think that is testament to the fact that there's this renewed sense of urgency. I think other things that are really key is that, you know, by 2030, a number of corporates, 45% of the FTSE 100 have made some form of net zero target. A lot of those will be in 2030. And I don't expect, you know, in 2029, I mean, I hope <laughs> that there isn't this huge demand for offsets in 2029 <laughs> as these companies realize that they're, they're nowhere near close to hitting targets. I think there's a lot of work and strategic work being put in place now to make those targets a reality. So I think things are changing. I think where, yeah, I think as an investor, we are looking a lot at the carbon accounting. We're looking a lot at things like offsetting, which are now previously had been, um, I think, disregarded as these forms of like paper indulgences to make yourself feel better, mm. but now are seen as really important to getting us to net zero. Um, but I think... Yeah, I think attitudes are definitely changing towards those sorts of offerings, and I think that's going to continue. So there's a lot of, I, from my perspective, I think there's a lot of optimism in terms of timing, but also forward-looking investments in terms of risk. Mm. And that's another thing that I look at in the fintech space is climate risk, so how we can model um, kind of climate events more and more precisely because... They are happening, as you said, and things are changing. And we, I think, have probably passed the point where things aren't going to change. And so, again, for you know things like just supply chain risk or um, you know insurance needs to start taking these things into account. Mm. I think as it really has an impact on insurance. I think in general, the global insurance industry has probably been one of the early ones to at least acknowledge the risks and do the math on the background, how does it uh, impact the economies? I've been reading lately the kind of GDP impact studies from the biggest reinsurers, and uh, they look rather bleak. Totally agree. I think I think it's, I'm always really interested to hear of how people first get into climate tech or just in general start to have an interest in climate change and usually it is by starting to read a report (laughs) and just realizing the magnitude and the scale of some of these effects for me that penny really dropped a few years ago 
when I just read an IPCC report and I was like, oh my God, you know, if this is the, if this is the statistical average of all these scientists, you know, you're, you're going to be seeing a lot of evidence that's going to be even more extreme than what's in that paper. So, and it, what's in that paper is pretty alarming. So, um, yeah, it's, it's pretty shocking. And I think as a result, we are seeing a lot of insurers reach out to us as investors and say, we need new tools, new solutions, new models, new data sets, because the way of calculating insurance premiums is actually not suited to climate change because um, the risks aren't static, they're dynamic in for climate-related risks, and they're non-linear, right? So, you know, uh, a flood which breaks a bridge, that's suddenly a, a billion-dollar uh, loss. It's not a gradual um, uh, thing that can be tracked as, as kind of time series data. So, yeah. Uh, with this urgency and with a kind of amount of companies popping up in the sector in early December, I also followed the NOAA conference in Zurich. The, uh, there's so much going on in this sector. I mean, how would you describe the kind of current, I don't know, cl- climate of the climate tech world? I think the first thing to note, and I don't know if you felt this at the NOAA conference, but just a huge amount of collaboration. I think other sectors tend to be a bit more uh, cagey on sharing IP, on collaborating between different stakeholders from entrepreneurs all the way to policymakers and investors in between. Climate tech is really different in that sense. Everyone's very keen to collaborate to find different solutions. And I think that's what makes it a really um, optimistic space to be in, actually. I think the other point to note is, as I said, the people are starting to think much more holistically about what climate tech can mean. So for us to really hit these net zero targets by 2050, we're not just going to need one sector to decarbonize, we're going to need a whole ecosystem of change. So I think some funds and even some founders have taken an approach of saying, well, we're not climate focused but I still want to be best in class for climate and that's really been a a step change I think thinking about if for example we have a large focus on climate change and climate tech partly because the other half of our business used to be Octopus Energy which is the UK's biggest renewable energy provider for people who (laughs) might not be Mm -hmm. into the UK energy landscape Mm -hmm. Um, but, you know, the consumer team, they're not specialised in climate change, but circular business models are starting to make a lot of business sense now and have a lot of traction from climate conscious users. So climate tech or best in class kind of sustainability is also seen as good business. And I think that's massively changed. And then on the other side of the spectrum, you are seeing an increasing amount of climate specialist funds that are being um, started up to support really deep tech innovation in climate tech. And that's everywhere. That's everywhere from hardware all the way to satellites. And that, again, really veers off the typical VC model of favoring software um, and being prepared to take, being prepared to deploy very, very patient capital into quite high risk technology. 
And I think, again, that's due to this sense of urgency. Um, so, yeah, I'd say there's the kind of two notable shifts. Mm. I mean, that's the kind of the big picture thinking and the big picture, also the positive side of the big picture. But what about the kind of on the ground thinking that, you know, when you're uh, I don't know, competing for the investment deal into a company, is there just, you know, sometimes too much uh, interest from the investors and not enough projects? Or is it uh, vice versa? I think there will never be enough projects tackling this problem. There are infinite number of approaches to climate change. And I think if I was a climate tech founder, it's important not to be scary of wary of um, competition because the more players you have in your space in a way it starts to validate that category so I think from my perspective you know the more projects the better um, and I also think founders being selective about what investors they get they're definitely starting to see more attention and again I think that's a good thing because found um, investors should be scrutinized on their climate credentials and their knowledge on the space so um yeah, definitely more competitive, but I think it's it's a good thing. Thanks, Natasha. We'll uh, wrap it up here for this show and uh, join us uh, again for the next episode. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you for listening. Uh, we will be back next week. Turn on to Nature Back podcast. Welcome to Tuning Into Sound Wellbeing, where we harmonise your mind, body and soul. I'm Amanda, your sound therapy expert. And I'm Stephen, the curious explorer uncovering the mysteries of sound. Together we explore vibrations, frequencies and the power of sound therapy and tuning forks. Discover ancient wisdom, reduce stress and tune into a healthier life. Subscribe to Tuning Into Sound Wellbeing today. Electric acid.